You're going to be at Roland Garros? Sounds like a person, by the way. Hey, man, my name's Roland Garros. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. I'm a po- <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 530 Politics Podcast. I'm Roland Garros. See, there you go. Here with us today is Wimbledon. What would Wimbledon's last name be? Wimbledon. Uh... Mountbatten. It would be Wimbledon Mountbatten. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start a tennis podcast where our alter egos will be Roland Garros and Wimbledon Mountbatten. I love this. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We last spoke when the result of Pennsylvania's Senate Republican primary was unclear. And, well, it is still unclear. Mehmet Oz's lead over Dave McCormick has shrunk to a thousand votes and ballots are still being counted. It's essentially guaranteed to go to a recount, so we'll let you know what to expect in the coming weeks from that race. And while we wait for those results, we have another big week of primaries with contests in Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, runoffs in Texas, and a special election in Minnesota. David Perdue's Trump-endorsed challenge to incumbent governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, is one of the biggest tests of former President Trump's sway within the Republican Party this cycle. It's also one of the biggest tests of the sway of baseless election fraud claims. We'll preview that race and others to watch this Tuesday. And we've got a good or bad use of polling for you. Does the lack of movement in the polls since the leak of the Supreme Court's draft opinion on Mississippi's abortion law mean that the overturning of Roe v. Wade wouldn't change the political environment very much? Here with me to discuss it all is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, guys. Also here with us is Politics Editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. And Elections Analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. All right, so we are going to save our good or bad use of polling for the end of the show today, and we're going to dive right into the ongoing count in Pennsylvania. So, Nathaniel, what's happened there since last Wednesday in the tally, and how many votes are yet to be counted still? We don't really know, but the number of outstanding ballots has definitely shrunk substantially to the point where, you know, a week ago it seemed very uncertain and either Oz or McCormick could pull it out. But it seems like at the rate they're kind of burning through these ballots and McCormick is really not gaining at as much of a clip as he needs to, it seems now like Oz is certainly favored to pull it out and win the nomination. So the way things stand at this exact moment, and it'll probably change by the time folks are listening to this, but we're recording on Monday midday. Oz has 31.2% and McCormick has 31.1% and they are separated by 1,067 votes. If you assume there are only a few thousand ballots left to count, McCormick would have to win those by a pretty staggering margin. And, you know, it's been pretty close in all of the batches that have been counted so far. This means that it will go to a recount. In Pennsylvania, the rules are such that there's an automatic recount if it's a half a point or less that divides the candidates. What do we know historically about how often a recount changes things and by how much a recount might potentially change things? 
recounts almost never change election results. And when they do, it's a kind of the situation where, I mean, a thousand votes in a statewide race like Pennsylvania is certainly very close, but we're talking about a whole other kind of order of magnitude. Like recounts more often change the results when it's like a 10 vote margin. And those are the kinds of things where, you know, okay, you can find 11 votes where maybe the ballot was, you know, misread or was marked ambiguously. And so you need to throw out some ballots and that can change the margin. But, you know, assuming it stays at around a thousand votes, Oz's margin, to change a margin that big would be pretty unprecedented for a recount. Recounts are overrated, basically. So, Nathaniel, it sounds like you're just about ready to call this primary for Oz. Does everyone else feel that way? Does anyone feel like there's still more ambiguity here? There have been reports of some absentee and mail ballots being submitted without dates on their envelopes. And so the McCormick campaign has been fighting in the courts for those to be counted. And so I do think it's going to be a very bitter fight because it it does seem if it's it's going to go to a recount. I'm not going to argue that the outcome is going to change here. And then while neither McCormick nor Oz have kind of weighed in and claimed election fraud, you can bet former President Trump already has. And it just seems as if this will be a rancorous fight. And it's one that's going to drag on for at least I guess like another week or so. No, I think that's right. I think you need like systematic things to be wrong, like a whole batch of ballots that have been uncounted or to be discounted or whatever else, right? It's like not like on a one-off basis, you make up this margin. It has to be like something, some systematic dispute or error or mistake that we're not accounting for, which which can happen, right? That's why it's like not 0% chance for McCormick, but like it's not like you're going to like on a one-off basis have like, oh, a few ballots kind of happen to be counted wrong. I mean, it would have to be something more global than that. When can we expect to finalize this, have actual results? And if, as we expect it to be, it ultimately is Oz, how does that shape our understanding of the general election? I mean, you know, in general, people who have not run for office before are subpar candidates. Apart from that, I think he's probably a fairly decent candidate for Republicans, right? He's very well known. I think he is a little bit eccentric as far as like his political stances, but it's a toss-up race, I think, is the standard treatment, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, a lot of the bad press that Oz got during the primary was that he had previously taken some fairly liberal positions on things like abortion and gun control. And it'll be interesting to see if he kind of tries to go back to that now that those could be advantageous in a general election by serving as proof that, hey, I'm actually not a very conservative Republican. I'm actually quite middle of the road. Right. Cuts a very different profile than Doug Mastriano, the the GOP's governor's nomination. And do we know when we might expect this to be all said and done? Because I'm sure whoever ultimately ends up winning is sort of champing at the bit to start their general election campaign in earnest. I was just looking. I don't see anything clear cut on that because it's likely to go back to the recount, but like not all the votes have been counted. So I know earlier I was like, it's going to drag on for at least a week. That's probably a generous underestimate would be my guess. All right. So that wasn't the only race that was still outstanding when we chatted last week. We've got more results in Idaho and Oregon as well at this point. And when we talked about sort of the message that primary winners in House races were sending, it seemed like a mixed bag between the different factions within the two parties. The establishment on both the Republican and Democratic side had notched some victories. So had progressives and more Trumpy candidates. 
Does it seem like now that we have results from Idaho and Oregon, that narrative has changed at all in one direction or another? I think that progressives, you know, were able to salvage the night. So we had a call in Pennsylvania's 12th congressional district where State Representative Summer Lee has won. Uh, That's a safely Democratic open seat. So she's very probably going to be going to Congress and she's progressive. She was endorsed by all manner of progressive groups and people like Bernie Sanders and stuff like that. So, you know, it looks like the progressives are are definitely going to add one member to the squad. And then also it looks quite likely that Jamie McLeod Skinner is going to emerge victorious in Oregon's 5th district, defeating moderate incumbent Kurt Schrader. That is a swing district, so it's not guaranteed that she would win in November. But for now, in arguably the two most high-profile Democratic primaries of the night, progressives were able, after a lot of counting, and I should say the Oregon race isn't called yet, but it looks like kind of the last two races of the evening are going to go progressives away after they lost some of the less high profile ones earlier in the evening. What percent of people with hyphenated names are Democrats? I would wager it's like 75%. In the country or in political office? In the country. Well, that I guess is fair. I mean, I don't know. That obviously sounds probably out of the blue to most people and to me included, But you'd have to think that there's a certain view of gender roles that comes with a hyphenated name and politics are ancestral. So people in large part inherit their politics from their parents. So I guess I wouldn't argue against that. Is there anything more you want to say on that topic, Nate? I mean, you know, never forget the Times profile piece that had two hyphenated names getting married. What to do? It's a real dilemma. If you have a triple hyphenated name, then you're probably Republican. You're like some Anglo-Saxon whatever, right? But... (laughs) But then you wouldn't hyphenate your name. You would just have like five names. Are there double hyphenated names? Yeah. Windsor, Mountbatten. <laughs> Mountbatten, Windsor. <laughs> Wimbledon, Windsor, Mountbatten. Yeah. Does Wimbledon, Windsor, Mountbatten still vote Republican or have they trended blue over the past couple cycles? No, they're more blue now. Yeah, for sure. Well, in the UK, blue is the conservative color. So be careful. That's true. But. The point was made during the whole like Brexit debate that the queen is actually a prime Brexit slash Trump voter because she has no better than a high school degree. I don't even know if she formally has a high school degree and she's extremely wealthy. So low educational attainment and high income track really well with voting for things like Brexit and Trump. Or like Mark Zuckerberg, right? He's like a white male college dropout, perfect Trump voter. I can't tell whether or not you're being serious. I'm sort of not kidding about like, I mean, a lot of like tech titans just have a BA or did not graduate. I think it's like actually kind of important culturally. Anyway, we got sidetracked a little bit, but I think we're done wrapping up last week's primaries. So let's move on to this Tuesday's primary. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Georgia has already seen record-breaking early voter turnout in the three weeks before this primary election. According to the Office of Georgia Secretary of State, three in five early voters have been casting Republican ballots. Perhaps that makes sense. It seems like the primaries on the Republican side are more competitive for the most part. And I should say here that 
Georgia is a big test for Trump. He's endorsed seven non-incumbent candidates in the state, most notably, as I mentioned already, including a challenger to the incumbent Republican governor. So are these races ultimately competitive with his endorsement and the likes? Well, not in the governor's, but where he's endorsed a non-incumbent in the secretary of state and attorney general races, those are much more competitive. And then the lieutenant governor, the last like statewide race is an open seat because the former lieutenant governor decided to not seek re-election after kind of disparaging Trump and how he handled the 2020 election there. But Turning to the governorship, you know, that was a big one for Trump. He was very angry with Kemp's decision to sign off on the Georgia's 2020 election results. And so he threw his weight behind former Senator David Perdue in the primary challenge. But things have just not broken Trump's way on that. You know, poll after poll shows Perdue leading 60% to 28% in a Fox News' early March poll. There was one released on Monday, a Fox 5 Insider Advantage survey that showed Kemp only leading 52% to 38%. But that's still enough for Kemp to avoid a runoff. And that's kind of been the wisdom going into tomorrow night's primaries is Kemp looks like he'll be able to fend back Purdue in this. It's less clear, though, in the Secretary of State and Attorney General race. That's been a much more challenging race for Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. He was very vocal, if you'll remember, in defending the legitimacy of Georgia's 2020 results. There was the whole hoopla around Trump calling him and saying to find, I think it was 13,000 votes. Raffensperger stood his ground. Public a book around it. He's earned a lot of enmity, I think, in the state, whereas like Kemp has kind of continued to pass conservative laws, has kept the base happy at home. Raffensperger doesn't really get to operate in the same space. And so Trump-backed representative Jody Heiss has mounted a real primary challenge there. And we have limited polling because, again, the fact that we're talking about Secretary of State races and Attorney General ones in the same way that we're talking about governor's races is a very 2022 thing. Coming off of 2020, and just like this bigger, you know, concern around the legitimacy of elections moving forward. And that's kind of the thread, I think, in Trump's endorsements, particularly within Georgia tomorrow night, is backing candidates who support his fraudulent claims around the election. And the Secretary of State is a really close one. The Attorney General, Chris Carr, is the incumbent there, and he faces a primary challenge. We just don't have as much polls. He also has raised more money than John Gordon, who's a businessman who has Trump's endorsement, who's challenging him. So it's harder to know in that race. Carr actually might be on solid footing, but Secretary of State could go to a runoff. Does anyone have more insight here into the standing of these sort of Trump-aligned challengers, Trump-aligned and Trump-endorsed challengers around the state? I think as we're previewing here, it seems like the most high-profile one will not succeed, David Perdue, in the governor's race. Does it seem as though he's likely to succeed elsewhere in the state? Or is this Trump's endorsement Waterloo? I think this whole topic is kind of overrated. Ooh, nay. Trump can nudge things by, I don't know, five or 10 points toward a candidate, which is not trivial in a close race. Aren't like some of these Georgia endorsements pretty recent where he like kind of at the last minute made some endorsements to like up his win rate? He always does that before primaries, but it's usually like, you know, random backbench Republican congressman who you've never heard of. The high profile races, obviously, he's been against Raffensperger for over a year. Same with Carr, I believe. Purdue, obviously, or he's been against Kemp for Purdue. Georgia sticks out as him endorsing non-incumbents in a sort of outsized way compared to a lot of the other states that we'll cover. 
And I was going to say like petty primary has not caught on, but when Trump does decide to go petty, I think that's where you do see a lot of his missteps is he just has these personal grudges that he can't let go. And so, right, like, you know, he did retract his endorsement from Mo Brooks, which we'll talk about later because Brooks wasn't doing well in the polls. And now maybe he actually is. Why he stuck by Purdue is a very open question because Purdue has never been doing well in the polls. Well, to your point. Sarah, I think it's his enmity for Kemp and for for Raffensperger is unmatched, right? In Alabama, it's not like he's trying to take out somebody who he feels did him some kind of grievous wrong. In Georgia, that is the case. And, you know, even though obviously the 2020 election was close in many states, Georgia really was the focal point for Trump's efforts to overturn the election. It seemed to be the loss that stung him the most. So it doesn't surprise me that it's the state where he has thrown caution to the wind the most in terms of his endorsement record in order to get what he wants. As you mentioned, sir, we don't know where the race stands in the Secretary of State race or the Attorney General's race in large part. And so we're going to be watching closely Tuesday night and we'll have a reaction podcast to follow up. What about in-house races in Georgia, where maybe, again, we don't have too much polling? In-house races, so for instance, on the GOP side, two of the competitive ones, they're actually safe Republican districts, so they won't be competitive in the general election, but they're ones we'll be watching on Tuesday night because it's a fight over what portion of the party will prevail. And so in the 6th Congressional District, Jake Evans, Trump's pick there, looks like he's doing well. He's raised a lot of money. His father was a big Trump donor and served as the U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg. That said, though, a physician in the race, Rich McCormick, he narrowly lost for the 7th District in 2020. This was before redistricting. He's also raised a lot of money, and it's a very crowded field, so nine candidates in all. So it's probably likely that no one candidate will clear the 50% threshold, and maybe we'll have an Evans-McCormick runoff coming out of that. And then in the 10th Congressional District, that's where Heiss had been representative and because he's now running for secretary of state, you know, that is a competitive primary as well. And former state rep Vernon Jones has Trump's endorsement. And you might remember him from the 2020 Republican National Convention. He made a huge splash as a black man and former elected Democrat who now backs Trump. And again, you know, he's outraised his opponents, but there's not really any polling. And it's kind of hard to know whether he'll be able to clear the field because it is a crowded field as well. And Mike Collins, a business businessman running there as another pro-Trump candidate. So in some ways, Trump has endorsed in these races, but any candidate that wins will still be Trumpy. So I guess that goes to Nate's point when he was kind of talking about some of these endorsements are overblown. I think that's particularly true in the congressional districts. For instance, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, like she does face a primary challenger. It's very unlikely that she'll be ousted. She's raised a huge amount of money and doesn't seem particularly vulnerable in that primary challenge. And, you know, I think maybe the most notable one that's not just like a very red district that's kind of jockeying for who represents it is the second congressional district in Southwest Georgia. And that is notable because it is light blue now and longtime Democratic Rep Sanford Bishop will have to face off a Republican in the general. And there are six Republicans in that race trying to take him on. And right now, the favorite might be the U.S. Army officer, Jeremy Hunt. He's outraised the rest of the field. He also has endorsements, not from Trump, but from Senators Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley. 
But then again, you know, there's another military person running, National Guard officer Chris West, or maybe a former Trump administration official, Wayne Johnson, will be able to best him. Those are the kind of the key house races. And of course, we haven't talked about the Senate primary there on the GOP side, which doesn't look terribly competitive either. Yeah, it ultimately looks like we're not going to have competitive races in Georgia in the Senate primary. Well, on either side, obviously, Raphael Warnock is not being challenged. Also on the Democratic side for Governor Stacey Abrams, this time is uncontested. So it will ultimately be Stacey Abrams versus either Purdue or Kemp, which we expect to be Kemp ultimately. I have a really basic question here. What is up with the runoff elections in the South? It seems like a lot of the states in the Northeast and Midwest don't have runoff races. We see people like J.D. Vance and Mehmet Oz winning with a third of the vote or something like that. But these southern states, a lot of them do have runoffs. What's the story behind that? It's a Jim Crow thing, right? To prevent a black candidate from winning with plurality. They wanted to make sure it would be one white candidate against one black candidate if it came down to that. So all the whites could uh, coalesce around one candidate. I mean, it's a basic ignorant question with a deep answer. So, I mean, thank you for that. Okay, well, before we move on to Alabama, we got one more race in Georgia to zoom in on, which is the 7th Congressional District where two Democratic incumbents were drawn together. Of course, redistricting always makes this cycle of midterms particularly interesting for that reason. What should we expect there, Nathaniel? So this is a primary between two incumbents, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bordeaux. And the 7th District is mostly Bordeaux's old territory, but actually my money would be on McBath winning because she is just kind of more in line with where the Democratic base is. She's more liberal. Bordeaux was one of the, I think, nine Democratic House members who gave Democrats an ultimatum that said we have to pass the infrastructure bill before we pass Build Back Better kind of gave Nancy Pelosi headaches. Lucy McBath, on the other hand, she used to be or I guess still is a gun control activist, has some strong ties to the activist wing of the party. So despite the geographic advantage that Bordeaux has, I think that McBath will probably win this, which I think is the second incumbent versus incumbent primary of the year so far. We've got a lot in New York coming up. New York is like battling hardcore. So the most notable statewide races in Georgia, governor and Senate, will not be competitive on Tuesday night, but they will surely be competitive in November. How should we think of Georgia? I think most people would consider it to be more Republican than Pennsylvania, although we can debate that if you want. Last week, we talked about how Pennsylvania would be a steep climb for Democrats this fall. Should we expect Georgia to be similar? Nate? I mean, Georgia and Pennsylvania are very similar in terms of PVI or partisan lean index. I mean, I actually think one kind of piece of pushback I give here, right? People will talk about like, oh, Pennsylvania is actually a red state because it's redder than the country average. I don't think there's reason to think the average is necessarily zero. You have Republicans in part because they have these advantages as far as all these rural Senate seats, right? They're not like exactly trying to be a middle of the road party, right? So the fact that Georgia and Pennsylvania have tended to vote Democratic more often than not, I think is more relevant than the fact that relative to the country average that it's red. Does that make sense, right? Sure. Yeah, but that's just as true of, of Georgia, right? 
It's true of both, right? But like the fact that it's not like in Arizona too, right? But like it's not irrelevant. Democrats tend to win the zero PVI states, right? Strategically, Republicans are like trying to carve out a position that is not optimizing how much you win in a 50-50 electorate, but in a map where it favors you. So they'll adopt more extreme positions and they still win elections half the time, but they do lose the swing states on average. And you have, I think, certainly in Georgia, Republican candidates who are not optimally designed to win over swing voters. I mean, I don't know what to make of Herschel Walker. I think he's maybe closer to underrated than overrated as a candidate. He's not some moderate that you would expect to triumph Warnock. Right. And Warnock's been pretty popular as a senator as well. So I do think candidate quality is going to matter a lot in these statewide races in both Pennsylvania and Georgia. One reason why I think a a number of different election forecasters kind of rated the governorship in Pennsylvania as more of a toss-up or very competitive after Mastriano winning is because he is seen as such an extreme candidate. Can he win statewide office even in an electoral environment that should be beneficial to Republicans? It's long been a fear that we've talked about on this podcast that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has had fearing repeat of 2010 when Republicans lost a lot of winnable seats because of who they nominated. And I think that would be a big question in some of these states. People who call Pennsylvania a toss-up, I think, are hedging more than they should. For governor? It's likely B. A snapshot of the forecast that you're working diligently on, Nate? (laughs) The forecast might not say it. In a purple state, wackos don't usually win, especially in governor's races where it is more about like candidate quality probably matters more for governorships than anything else, right? You have like Republicans who are governors in Massachusetts and Maryland currently, for example, or a Democrat in Kentucky and Louisiana. I don't know. I mean, if Pennsylvania votes for Mastriano, then kind of, I don't know what to say. We update our priors, right? <laughs> People underestimate the importance of candidate quality. Okay, sure. Neat. We're also in a dynamic environment, right? I mean, Democrats have only been winning states like you mentioned, Arizona, very recently, and not in an environment where Democrats are facing significant headwinds. I mean, just looking at Morning Consult's polling, we've already mentioned this, but Biden's net approval in Pennsylvania is negative 14. His net approval in Georgia is negative 11. Net approval in Arizona, negative 14. I take what you're saying about governor's races being more independent from the national environment, but it's kind of hard to see these states acting like purple 50-50 states in this environment. I've done a lot of work in this area and like candidate quality might, in the case of an extreme example, might matter by like 10 points or something, right? And Master I think is an extreme example of someone who correctly going to be viewed as being quite extreme. We've talked about this and we said that a lot of the ratings groups changed it to actually lean Democratic from toss up once Mastriano won. Yeah, fair. I mean, the ratings groups are great and they add value. We actually use the ratings in our model, right? But they're overly cautious. But I did want to talk about Georgia. Like, how would you place Georgia in this dynamic? Because there's no Mastriano ultimately running. I mean, unless David Perdue wins, there's no Mastriano running in Georgia in these statewide races. In an environment where Biden is underwater by about 10 points in Georgia. Okay, for, first of all, the Biden underwater thing, that's kind of that's kind of dumb, right? <laughs> Biden's underwater in part because like a lot of Democrats are unhappy with how he's doing. It doesn't mean they're going to vote Republican, right? The generic ballot is R plus, what is it, two or three, right? If that becomes R plus six or seven, then all these races become lean Republican, except maybe Pennsylvania governor because Mestriano is going to suffer a severe candidate quality penalty, I think. At R plus two or three, I mean, that's the point where... 
Democrats can, first of all, incumbency is an advantage historically, right? It's becoming less and less of one, but incumbents don't lose quite as easily as open seat candidates do, right? And Warnock's a good candidate and Walker has some problems, right? So I think it's kind of a pure toss up. And like the Biden approval stuff is kind of neither here nor there, really, right? I don't buy that like Biden approval is like a more leading indicator than the generic ballot because the generic ballot like poses a question, right? It says, given the choice, what will you do, right? And Biden's unpopular, but Republicans are really unpopular too. So are Democrats, by the way. And so the choice is what you actually face in an election. And I do think one data point in Nate's advantage here is I was looking back at our 2018 generic ballot tracker. And, you know, on May 23rd, 2018, so like where we are in the cycle, but four years ago, Democrats had a 6.3 lead in the generic ballot. And again, like we've written stories about how the generic ballot tends to overestimate Democrats' performance to Republicans. But there were early signs in 2018 that we were headed towards a blue wave environment. And while there are signs that this will still be a strong electoral year for Republicans, I don't think we've seen at this point the same kind of like indicators of a red wave environment. I don't know about that. I mean, the generic ballot does tend to get worse for the White House's party as time goes on. We saw it go from, what, D plus six at this point in 2018 to a final place of D plus nine. In 2010 and 2014, the last two red wave election cycles, we saw the same thing. And the, the generic ballot right now is comparable to where it was in 2010 at this stage. So I do think we can expect you know Republicans to gain at least a few points there. Republicans tend to gain more than Democrats do because once likely voter polls start kind of getting added into the the equation in like the fall, when Republicans are fired up to vote, their voters are already likelier to vote than kind of your average Democratic voter because they're older, they're you know whiter. And so, you know, I think I would expect Republicans to gain more on the generic ballot in the fall in a red wave year than I would have Democrats in a blue wave year. But now they're less educated Republicans, right? I mean, it's it's like a little bit ambiguous. I mean, again, our model will actually assume there's a Republican advantage from likely voter polls relative to registered voter polls. But like, I think there are reasons to question how permanent that is. I think it'll be less but because of the you know, the educational shift toward Democrats. But I don't think that advantage is all the way gone, obviously. Okay. Well, this is a conversation we're going to continue having over this cycle. I also have to ask you, Nate, are you filming like your own version of the Blair Witch Project over there? What is going on with your video? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So I kind of love this. We should keep all of this in. The charger on my phone is kind of janky. And like, if I have the phone horizontal, it won't plug in. <laughs> so I have to like hold it vertically. Listeners at home, I don't know if this will be edited in post. Maybe Tony will make you look right side up when he actually publishes this video. <laughs> uh, but for listeners at home, we're currently having a conversation with Nate where he is on his side after basically shaking his phone all over the place and making it look like he was filming the Blair Witch Project in his apartment. To me, you're on your side and I'm... I'm heads up. I'm vertical, right? You are all on your sides. I'm correct from my vantage point. It's all a matter of perspective. Isn't it funny how that works? Maybe maybe this is just a great metaphor for Nate's galaxy brain. No, who wants who wants like landscape mode? <laughs> Portrait 100%, man. We've had a good conversation, but we've sort of botched the pace with which I thought we might move through some of these primaries. We've only covered Georgia. Alabama, another state where there are runoffs. As we've mentioned earlier on in this podcast, Southern states have runoffs as a holdover from the Jim Crow era. 
And it looks like there are some Republican incumbents who are fighting to avoid runoffs in Alabama. So, Nathaniel, why? The Senate seat in Alabama is open because Republican Richard Shelby is retiring. And it looks like it's a three-way race um, between Katie Britt, who is his former, Shelby's former chief of staff, and Representative Mo Brooks, who we've already kind of talked about, was endorsed by Trump initially, um, is a kind of a big-time pro-Trump guy, was the first member of Congress to say that he would challenge the results of the 2020 election by voting not to certify. But then Trump uh, actually was unhappy with his performance. Um, he kind of was languishing in the polls, not doing as well as Trump wanted probably, and Trump unendorsed him a couple of months ago. And then the third candidate is Mike Durant, who is a former Army helicopter pilot. The movie Black Hawk Down was in part based on his experience um, getting shot down over Somalia. Um, and he's also very wealthy. He's poured something like $10 million into his own campaign. So you have this very close race at this time. It looks like basically it's roughly a virtual tie in the polls uh, between these three candidates. But as you mentioned, Galen, Alabama has a runoff. So we're almost certainly going to a runoff. I'd be very surprised if anybody gets over 50%. The question is, of course, which two of these three candidates will advance to the runoff. And it's interesting because... Brooks was really struggling and, and doing a clear third in the polls for a while. But actually, ironically, since Trump unendorsed him, he's actually improved uh, a fair bit. God, that's got to be so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in many ways, you know, obviously the, the Georgia stuff would be much more straightforward if, you know, Purdue loses and, you know, Trump was dealt a clear loss. But in many ways, Alabama is kind of the the clearest counterexample of voters are just listening to what Trump does because if, if Mo Brooks makes the runoff and comes up in the polls, um, I mean, he's already done that, then uh, that, you know, that would kind of show no relationship between what voters are thinking about the race and kind of Trump's instructions to them. But yeah, you know, it, it, it could go either way. I think Brit seems like the most likely one to make the runoff. She's been leading in the polls for you know, several months now. Um, it's a small lead, but um, it does seem consistent. So, you know, maybe it'll be Brit and Brooks, maybe it'll be Brit and Durant. We'll see. And in terms of style, it sounds like Britt, who was the current senator who's retiring, Richard Shelby's chief of staff, is more in her boss's mold of somewhat more mild-mannered and less Trumpy. Yeah, I think that's right. She was the president of the Business Council of Alabama before uh, she ran for Senate, so she has strong ties to kind of the business community. Shelby himself is kind of an old-style appropriator, you know, brings home the bacon for his constituents rather than being super ideological uh, like someone like Brooks is. So yeah, so, you know, Britt has definitely gone out of her way to try to appeal to Trump, even when he had kind of endorsed Brooks. Uh, she actually, I think, was very savvy in terms of still kind of ingratiating herself to him and um, kind of greasing the the skids for him to unendorse Brooks and feel like, you know, Britt wasn't someone he would, you know, who was like against him, for example. But yeah, she, she does not seem like she would be the kind of bomb-throwing, um, election-denying candidate that Brooks would be. She's actually been vague on the question of the, of the 2020 election. So actually shouldn't, shouldn't say one way or the other where she stands. I mentioned incumbents who are trying to fend off runoffs in Alabama, and I'm referring most specifically to the governor, which this is a little unexpected. Kay Ivey, the incumbent Republican governor, is pretty popular, but is facing some challenges. Why? 
Yeah, so there was reporting at the end of last year that Trump wasn't happy with Ivy because she had, or she didn't do anything. There was a, a historic battleship in Mobile that uh, Trump wanted to hold a rally on and the like. The, the governing commission said no and Trump apparently, according to some reporting, was unhappy with Ivy because of that decision, even though she wasn't the one that made the decision. Um, and I think that emboldened a couple of strongish candidates to jump into the race. So um, Trump's former ambassador to Slovenia, Lindy Blanchard, jumped into the race. The son of a former governor, Tim James, uh, jumped into the race. He has a lot of money. They both have a lot of money, or actually all three of them have a lot of money. But Trump never kind of made any public moves against Ivy. He hasn't endorsed one of her challenges, for example. So we're kind of in this in-between zone where she has some credible challengers and they've dropped millions of dollars against her, but she herself ha is well-funded and is popular and hasn't given voters a reason to reject her. And so she is leading in the polls by a comfortable margin. The only question is really whether she avoids a runoff. Even if she is forced into a runoff, I expect that she would win it easily. So it's like a kind of primary that we're watching because you know there are... You know, there's a credible challenge. There are credible challengers, but we don't necessarily expect will um, surprise us. I have a question for the panel: Are there some ambassadorships you would turn down? Like, oh, you give a lot of money to this party, right? You've done me a lot of favors, and now you're ambassador to Luxembourg. Would you accept that or turn that down? Luxembourg, yeah, think, absolutely. Yeah, because okay, yeah. I feel like this is like our our city ranking conversation. What what ambassadorships would would Nate Silver turn down? Yeah, what are you? What's your answer, Nate? No, I don't want to insult whole cities. I can insult. I'm an American. I can insult cities. <laughs> I don't want to insult whole countries, but there, <laughs> there are some I turn down. Let's put it like that. I would, t you know, honestly, little old me, like I've been living in New York for a while. If someone offered me an ambassadorship, it takes them forever to get approved anyway, so their tenures don't even last four years. I would say yes. It's an experience, almost no matter where it is. Yeah. I agree. It's like, it's short enough. Exactly. You can spend two years and then, and then come back home. And you know, it's just like a, it's a way to see the world. I think there are actually some of the ones that I think I would reject are like ambassador to Russia or something that's China. like actually really difficult. Yeah. And I'd be like, I would be way in over my head here. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Keep yeah, that yeah. in mind. Future presidents. I agree. Nathaniel is not interested. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to disappoint. I know everybody's champing at the bit to have me negotiate sticky uh, situations. Back to the topic at hand, we're going to cover Arkansas, Texas, and Minnesota in about five minutes here. So Arkansas, worth noting that former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders is running for governor there. It's not competitive, but are there any other races of note in Arkansas that we should tick off before we motor on to Texas? Arkansas Senator uh, John Boosman is facing a challenge kind of, you know, in the same vein as Ivy where... He's perfectly popular. Trump has endorsed him, but um, some people think that he isn't MAGA-y enough. So he's facing a couple of challengers, particularly from former NFL player um, Jim Baquette. Um, Jake Baquette, sorry. I, actually, there was a controversy about his name on the ballot being listed wrong. So sorry, Mr. Baquette. But... Uh, yeah, he, he has the backing of, a, of a, an influential billionaire who uh, thinks that Boozman isn't strong enough. So if Boozman gets forced into a runoff against that guy, maybe that could get interesting, but I think Boozman's probably going to be fine. All right, Texas, where we are going to be watching the primary runoffs on Tuesday. This is where it finally gets interesting on the Democratic side. What are we watching? 
Yeah. So there is a competitive race in the um, 30th, and that is to succeed retiring Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson. This is a solidly blue district, but there is a race then um, in terms of who her replacement is going to be. There is a close race between State Rep Jasmine Crockett and Jane Hamilton, who was a longtime congressional staffer and campaign advisor. This race, you know, was close enough in March that it has now gone to a runoff. Um, Both of them are black women who have racked up a lot of endorsements in the Dallas area from other black leaders. And right now, you know, it's kind of a muddled picture. There's reports that it's Crockett's um, race to lose, given that she netted 48.5% of the vote in March. But she also has kind of a, you know, complicated background in the sense of maybe misrepresenting herself as an attorney for Botham Jean, who was a Dallas man who was fatally shot by an off-duty police officer in 2018. That could hurt her um, in the eyes of the voters. It's a blue seat, though, um, and has been a little bit quieter than some of the other primaries, most notably of which on the Democratic side is the 28th district, which I know Nathaniel can talk about more. Um, But that is a showdown between moderate representative Henry Cuellar and progressive attorney Jessica Cisneros. It was super close in March. KR only netted 49% of the vote, um, Cisneros 47%. Remember, too, that KR only narrowly beat Cisnero in 2020. She used to work for KR. There's a lot of bad blood at this point. And as we'll talk about in our good use and bad use of polling, what's really interesting in this race is the role that abortion is now playing. So KR is someone who has been kind of anti-abortion in his stances. He did release a statement in May saying that, you know, the leaked Supreme Court decision was not based on precedent and would further divide the country during these already divisive times, but you can bet that Cisneros um, team has tried to take him for task for some of the legislation he's supported over the years. Super close race um, and definitely one we'll be keeping an eye on as it goes back to Nathaniel's earlier point around, you know, how is the progressive wing of the party faring in these races? Yeah, this is one progressives really want to have, especially in the wake of the the leaked draft decision over that would overturn Roe v. Wade, um, you know, as Sarah mentioned, Quayer had the slight advantage in the initial round, but actually um, some anonymous internal polling, which obviously you should take with a grain of salt, but um, the Cook Political Report reported that Cisneros is actually leading now, and I think it would be easy to connect the dots and say that's because of um, Cisneros's pro-abortion rights stance and, and Quayer's uh, votes against, uh, against abortion rights. That has definitely been uh, an issue that Cisneros has been emphasizing a lot on the campaign trail. Yeah. And I neglected to mention the 15th district. That's another competitive race for Democrats, a similar progressive versus moderate vibe. Um, it's a different district, though, in the sense of it's one that Republicans are really heavily targeting here in the fall and will be a competitive general election. All right. So once results start rolling in on Tuesday, we'll have a better picture of how those intraparty battles are playing out. should also mention that we're watching the attorney general's race in Texas on the Republican side tomorrow, where a Bush is going to be on the ballot. And of course, we will get a test of how much cachet that name still has in the Lone Star State. And I'll mention Minnesota. It is the primary for a special election there where Representative Jim Hagedorn passed away, unfortunately. And we will cover that as results come in as well. Let's get to our good or bad use of polling. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Three weeks ago today, a draft Supreme Court opinion in the Dobbs abortion case leaked, showing a conservative majority on the court favoring overturning Roe v. Wade. It was a pretty big news event. We talked about it on this podcast at the time. And about how such an opinion, if it is indeed the final opinion, could shape voters' behavior. So that is what our good or bad use of polling is about today. Here's some context. Data journalists at The Economist, G. Elliot Morris, along with others, have noted that the indicators that we use to track the political environment, so presidential approval, the generic congressional ballot, have gone essentially unchanged over the past three weeks. If anything, Biden's approval has trended down by a point or so, and the generic ballot still favors Republicans by two points. So Morris shared a snapshot of these trend lines, writing, quote, Looks like the leaked Dobbs decision and apparent imminent overthrow of Roe v. Wade has had dot 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 no impact at all on the overall political environment? Question mark. So, is this use of these polls, the congressional generic ballot and presidential approval, a good or bad use of polling? Nate, I know you have thoughts on this, so I will let you begin. Yeah, I think this is pretty short-sighted for several reasons. One reason being that like. The generic ballot is a very noisy measure. And also the way our average works is designed to kind of smooth out that noise in the generic ballot. And so it's it's very conservative about moving. Even if you had a bunch of generic ballot polls in a row that would were good for Democrats, it would need like quite a few polls over a sustained length of time this far after the election to say, oh, let's kind of really shift the average here, right? So you have like an average that's designed to be stable then pointing toward its stability is not really indicative of much. That's kind of, it's not a bias. It's like empirically, that's what predicts future generic ballot polls best as being very conservative as compared to like presidential approval ratings or something. So that's just first out of the way, like it's designed to be a pretty steady measure. And so pointing towards steadiness is not really telling you very much. But also like, I don't think the draft opinion of Roe v. Wade Leaking is tantamount to like the entire electoral impact of Roe v. Wade. For one thing, you know, if you're a normal Democrat, you probably aren't reading Politico. You probably heard something secondhand about Roe v. Wade, but like it hasn't been overturned yet. I presume it will be. But, you know, this hasn't happened yet, right? It's a preview of coming attractions. And like people who watch previews are bigger aficionados than people who watch the actual main event. For another thing, these polls as we mentioned before, are polls of registered voters among likely voters. There could be a bigger impact. I mean, certainly it gives Democrats an argument that look at how extreme Republicans are, right? It's not hypothetical as like some of the overturning election stuff might be, right? You could say these people, if they're in power, then the next election might be the last one. I mean, that might be true or some version that might be true, but like you don't really have any proof of it. If the Supreme Court overrules Wade, then that's like proof of like, the conservative movement substantially changing American life. 
Also, you have a lot of states where there are trigger laws in effect. So that means you're going to have all of a sudden much more conservative positions on abortion and or you have Republican politicians who will be eager to pass laws in those states. So on a state by state basis, you'll have like a lot of news and that story will kind of come up kind of constantly. So you're arguing that just because there hasn't been any change in the political environment so far doesn't mean that there won't be any change. And Morris followed up on this idea. And he said, I'm not saying there won't be any changes after SCOTUS overturns Roe, just that there haven't been yet. Though I'm more convinced by the case, everyone is already sorted on Roe, then we'll only see results after it actually happens. Maybe the truth is somewhere in between. So... I'm not, first of all, I'm not sure we haven't, I don't think we have the precise enough instruments to like measure whether or not there's been change, right? It's a different thing when you're like in September of a presidential election year where you have five national polls literally being conducted every day, right? We might get two high quality generic ballot polls a week. The, the, the generic ballot, excuse me, is noisy, right? So like the fact that we haven't been able to detect much either way does not mean there hasn't been change. That's an important qualification. So I'm going to start this by saying I actually do agree with Nate, but I don't think good use and bad use of polling is fun when we all agree. (laughs) So I'm going to say that this was a good use because I do think there are actually two key things about what Morris is arguing that should be considered. I'm not saying they're right. I agree with Nate, but okay, for argument's sake, the first of which is There hasn't been a movement at the national level in response to the draft opinion being leaked. I think that is interesting. And I think that's interesting because it goes back to something we've been talking a lot about, which is why, given what happened on January 6th and the rise in terms of Republicans running for office who are arguing that the election was fraudulent, there hasn't been a penalty for that. You haven't seen the environment favor Democrats. And I know we were talking earlier that, you know, look, it's going to vary state to state, but it's kind of been politics as normal. And I think that's something that right now, you know, and we don't know what the Supreme Court is going to do. The environment could still change after that. But at this point, in this specific point of time, it hasn't changed, which I do think is interesting. How do we know there's not a penalty for Republicans? Why are they only ahead by two or three on the generic ballot and not by seven or eight, given inflation and Omicron and Biden being old and all these things, right? People being very unhappy with the direction of the country. Why are they only up by two or three? I think it's in part because that people perceive them as being not a very palatable alternative. Well, I mean, I agree with that. But again, bear in mind that we're basically at the same point that we were at in 2010. Um, So I think it's not necessarily that unusual. But yes, I think I completely take Nate's point that the counterfactual is unknowable. But we do know generic ballot polls tend to overestimate Democrats' strength and performance. That could be a play here. I'm not saying the polls are broken. Um, But there is definitely a known issue with trying to get Republican voters uh, on the record in polls. I'm just saying, like, we're presuming a lot of the outcome in this. I mean, you know, you have to have the election first. If you have an election where Democrats win all these swing seats because Republicans nominate people who are not mainstream candidates, right, then, like, that's possible. And it's like a very different read on the election, right? And the elections haven't happened yet. And it's a little bit ambiguous. Well, but then how do you measure the impact Well, how do you measure the impact of potentially overturning Roe then? Because you're saying, oh, that might be the outcome because Republicans have nominated unelectable candidates. 
like one of the ways that you would parse the impact of Roe is that when the event actually happens, so when we first hear about it potentially, or when it actually happens, we see movement in the polls. So far, we haven't seen movement in the polls, which I wouldn't have necessarily expected when I found out about this three weeks ago. So that's at least one data point, right? We haven't not, the polls, our average is not sensitive enough to detect movement if there were movement. Do you think right? there has been? I don't know, but like point to our average is neither here nor there, right? It's designed to be exceptionally conservative in May, half a year before an election with a noise measure like the generic ballot, right? And so like, it doesn't inform you very much. What about presidential approval? I mean, but like, why would you approve Biden more because Roe got overturned? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it primes your partisan impulses to be like, okay, I'm a Democrat who's been saying I don't approve of Biden, but now, you know, he's my best shot at preventing X or Y. You know, the Democratic Party has to come together. Right. And that's why the, the generic ballot or a head-to-head -head poll, Biden versus Trump or DeSantis, might make more sense, right? But like, you're not asked to make, especially in an environment where, because like approval does gravitate toward the presidential margin, like late in an election year. We're not in an election year for Biden, right? There are lots of people who say, I am disappointed with Joe Biden, but I'm sure as hell not going to vote Republican, right? Um, and for that type of voter, Roe will be a sure as hell not going to vote Republican reason that will show up. Maybe the generic ballot will show up in turnout for sure, which isn't really being measured by registered voter polls, but might not show up in, in Biden approval. Yeah, so what I would really like to see is is whether you know any likely voter polls changed, um, which I just don't think we know. Um, throwing some data out there, you know, looking at individual pollsters, um, you did see a Democratic spike in um, the generic ballot polling done by um, Marist College. So in April, it was R plus three. And in May, shortly after the draft decision was leaked, it was D plus five. However, Quinnipiac, uh, showed virtually no change. So Quinnipiac went from R plus three in April to uh, R plus four in mid-May. I also, I don't want to completely spoil what 538 contributor Michael Tesler has coming on the site this week, but he's looked at public opinion on abortion since the leaked draft opinion. And he has found on the national level that Democratic voters are much more likely to say that abortion is very important to them than Republicans. And now most Americans think Roe will be overturned. I think the big question, though, is they are rating it as a more important issue in their 2022 votes than in 2018, but it is still... Um, 48% um, as a very important issue, not the number one issue. A lot of this will probably play out in the state level, making it hard to capture some of this in national polls like the generic ballot. But also, you know, a lot of Americans might not really, it might not be abortion that makes them go to the polls and vote. It's an issue that a lot of Americans have an opinion on. I think, Galen, you had asked earlier, um, you know, Morris had flagged that this was something that people are sorted on. I I think people are sorted on it, yes, but don't actually have that strong of views on it. I think we tend to overestimate, and Amelia Thompson-DeVoe has written a ton of this um, for the site again and again, is that Americans just kind of don't want to think about abortion. Um, they don't know much about it, and they are okay with the status quo. They don't want Roe upended. Polls show that time and again. It would take a lot, though, to really galvanize a lot of Americans for abortion to be the number one issue in their, um, in their vote choice here in 2020.
Okay, so it sounds like we have a bad user pulling from Nate, a muddled to bad, but interesting user pulling from Sarah. Nathaniel, do you have a thought on this overall? Yeah, I I largely agree with Nate. You know, I think Elliot is a, a really sharp an- analyst, but I just think it it is you know, premature, which he acknowledged. Personally, what I'm looking for here is I, I I would separate out the short term impact and the long term impact. I think we've mostly been talking about the short term impact and kind of the the shock to the system that this decision would have, um, and particularly its impact on 2022. I think that will largely show up not in changing people's minds, but in terms of enthusiasm and maybe giving Democrats a reason to vote when otherwise they would be fairly depressed to because other things, you know, aren't going their way. I mean, this also wouldn't be going their way, but there's something they could do about it, I guess. And I think that we just don't have the, the kind of the likely voter polls to, to make that judgment yet. And then I think the long-term impact, I think, is really important. I don't want to obscure here either. And I think that this is really an issue where it's not going to be the, the kind of paperwork ruling from the Supreme Court that is going to change people's mind. It's going to be the actual act of abortion becoming illegal in many states and the um, second and third order impacts that's going to have for, you know, not just women, but, you know, everybody in terms of the healthcare system and everything. And I think that, you know, most people just haven't lived in an environment where abortion is illegal in their state or in half of the country that they live in. And that is going to be an environment that we have to kind of get used to politically. Um, and so basically we won't know the impact of that for what, you know, maybe maybe in a year it'll it'll have sunk in with people. And that'll be, of course, after the 2022 election. We're talking about 2024 when I think this could be a, a major issue. I mean, part of my annoyance, if you detect that emotion from me, right, is like, it's so easy to say, LOL, nothing matters about everything because Polls are noisy, they move slowly, voters aren't that attuned to individual stories, right? And like, Roe v. Wade being overturned is a big deal. Your prior shouldn't be, LOL, nothing matters for a story like this. And there's so many stupid stories that get lots of media coverage that like, aren't like that, right? I mean, an entire conservative movement has been oriented for decades around trying to get this one decision overturned. It's it's a pretty big deal. Now, the mature version of LOL Nothing Matters, like a pretty big deal, might move things by like two points and not 10 or something. But like, I feel like LOL Nothing Matters loses credibility when you kind of prematurely apply it to like things that actually are substantively important. All right. Well, only time will tell, it sounds like. So like the conversation about the generic ballot that we we're having before, we will cover it when we have an answer. Let's leave it there, though, for now. Thank you, Nathaniel, Sarah, and Nate. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Sorry for the vertical, to me, the correct video, but to the rest of you, I'm tilted. You know, you're living in your own world, Nate, but we appreciate it. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis and Emily Vineski are on audio editing. And Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.